Sirius XM presents Stanford Pathfinders. Stanford has 225,000 alumni living all over the globe in 151 countries. And they're some of the most amazing people you would ever want to meet. A show about how the graduates of Stanford University are changing our lives and the world. We'll hear very interesting things from business leaders in the technology sector, but well beyond that. The worlds of politics, entertainment, business, and beyond. Inspiring stories from America's innovation heartland. It's a place where people look to the future, not to the past, where they don't rest on their laurels. Think about the gold rush. Think about Stanford being formed in the late 1800s. And then Stanford was the beginning of Silicon Valley. And the ethos of Silicon Valley is deeply embedded in the Stanford spirit. It's a spirit of innovation, experimentation. It's a spirit of being willing to try new things and risk failure as long as you fail forward. Welcome to Stanford Pathfinders. Today, an alumnus who is one of the biggest personalities in the world of wine. Have tender tendencies. Kind of scroll through it verbally with them. Okay, that sounds good. What else? Author, entrepreneur, and wine expert, Mark Oldman. This right now is the golden age of wine selection. There have never been so many regions producing such good wine, and many of them are at a fraction of the cost of the marquee regions. Now, to uncork this episode of Stanford Pathfinders, here's Howard Wolf. Before Stanford University was even an idea, even a concept, Leland Stanford, the founder of Stanford University with his wife Jane, was involved in the wine business. Leland Stanford wasn't necessarily a successful vintner, but he had caught the wine bug in France and was trying his best to replicate the success of French wines in California in the 1860s. He owned a number of vineyards and tried his luck with several varieties of wine to mixed reviews. In fact, to the protest of many who thought alcohol and education should not be mixed, he kept the red brick winery that had been on his former horse trotting farm, the new site of the university. Its end ultimately came when the university converted the winery to a much needed dormitory in 1909. Over the years, Stanford alumni have been influential players in the U.S. wine business. From the Mondavis to the Wentes, and Jay Lohr to Paul Draper and countless alumni in between, Stanford's imprint, especially on the California wine industry, has been tremendous. But this imprint goes way beyond winemakers. It also includes wine personalities. Today's guest, Mark Oldman, is exactly such a figure. With both undergraduate and law degrees from Stanford, Mark has never taken the normal path. He is a successful entrepreneur as the co-founder of Vault, pioneering.com focused on the career space. After successfully selling Vault in the early 2000s, Mark pivoted to a career in wine as one of the country's leading wine personalities. With three successful wine books under his belt, Oldman's Guide to Outsmarting Wine, Oldman's Brave New World of Wine, and his latest, How to Drink Like a Billionaire, Mastering Wine with Joie de Vivre, Mark is considered a leading expert in translating the world of wine to the masses. Mark, welcome to the show. Thank you, Howard. Really good to be here. So let's start with the easiest question of all. How'd you get hooked on wine? I'm told that you even taught a wine class when you were an undergraduate at Stanford. It all goes back to the Stanford and Oxford program. Ah. And like you, I know you're originally a Jersey guy, and I was a Jersey guy, which meant I had no background in wine. But I was at the Stanford and Oxford program, and uh, I saw an ad for something called the 
Oxford Wine Circle. And I'm like, hey, I'll stop by this. This sounds cool. I'd like to learn about wine. And I admitted I knew nothing. And they're like, well, you can audit. You can just watch. Actually, you could taste wines, but we're, we're not going to ask you what sorts of wines these are. And um, after 45 minutes of blind tasting, it went around the room. And the head of then the Oxford Wine Circle, who there's no one more British than an American who wants to be British. So he was like, turns to me, okay, Mr. American, what kind of wine do you think this is? And I would have had no idea, except I had been sitting next to the former president who had the answer key. And I was like, well, um, Sancerre, um, 87, Left Bank Loire. And after a few of those, they were like, oh, my God, we've got a ringa. And they let me on to the Oxford wine tasting team, the Oxford wine circle. And needless to say, I could never produce the original success of that. <laughs> but I got back to Stanford, and I started a wine club based on that experience. So as you well know, because you know my history with wine, there are few people in the world who know less about wine (laughs) than do I. So I'm guessing there are people in the audience listening who are just like me. So what's the one single thing we should know about wine to make us all just a little bit less clueless? It's such a good question, and I do have a crystallized answer. That is, deliciousness is not proportional to price. Uh, Over the weekend, I was in New Orleans, and I was lucky I was at this dinner. When you write about wine, you get invited to these crazy dinners, and one bottle of white wine of Chardonnay was $3,000. People ask me, well, did it taste like a $3,000 bottle of wine? And the answer is no, it was really good, it was delicious, but after a certain amount, you're paying less for the intrinsic value and more for things like rarity. Uh, Scarcity and marketing and all these other things that add on to the cost. Completely. So what's that number beyond which you're really not getting value? It depends on the variety and the region. So for a certain very humble varieties, I mean, $15, $20 can get you a beautifully made bottle of wine. When it comes to, you know, a great Burgundy, which is essentially French Pinot Noir, or a great Bordeaux, or let's say a a great Napa Cab, those are harder to make generally, and you might have to pay 40 or 50 or 60. But don't think I don't spend on expensive wine. I mean, sometimes nothing delights a wine lover more than that great $15 bottle. But we also, many of us, spend on really expensive bottles, and there are reasons for that. So there's this, I've consumed your books, as you know, but you use this term that I've never heard before. Venice? Vinus. Vinus? No wonder I've never (laughs) heard it. You could say Venice. (laughs) Vinus promiscuity. I know what promiscuity is. Right. And I don't suggest that in general in life, but tell me what Vinus promiscuity means. Here's the thing. We all stay in our own lane too much when it comes to wine. We rely on the same old standards. I'm guilty of it too. And I have to push myself a little bit beyond my comfort zone. But I'll tell you one thing that uh, Californians are guilty of, and that is 
relying too much just on this beautiful Californian wine. And so adventure and value lies beyond, you know, that Chardonnay from Napa or that beautiful Pinot Noir from Sonoma. So get to learn other regions of the world. This right now is the golden age of wine selection. There have never been so many regions producing such good wine, and many of them are at a fraction of the cost of the marquee regions. I feel like a total idiot when I'm at a restaurant and someone says, Howard, you pick the wine. So I stress out over the picking of the wine. Right. And then the wine comes and I'm supposed to, quote unquote, approve the wine. So help me here. Do I swirl? Do I sniff? Do I touch the cork? Do I look for the legs? Where do I find the legs? What do the legs look like? What does someone like me who right. doesn't really know anything about wine, right. but is put in this position where I'm at a table hosting a dinner and I'm supposed to approve the wine and make it look like I actually understand <laughs> what I'm doing. Right. All right. Well, we're going to give you the two-minute faker's guide because we're all essentially fakers because, you know, wine doesn't come with an instruction book. But I'll tell you the one thing that it took me years to learn, and that is when we are presented with wine in a restaurant, we're not actually supposed to say something erudite knowledgeable about it. Instead, it's binary. You're like Emperor Nero. It's either up or it's down. And when it's down, it's often because the wine is what we call corked. Uh, it's Court? Corked. C-O-R-K-E-D. Corked. Corked. And that means it's basically spoiled. It's taken on a certain chemical that I'm not going to bother you with, but it can happen to wine at all price points of all quality levels. And it's usually because of a chemical that gets on or into the cork or even the production process. Bottom line is you're smelling for that. You're smelling for wet cardboard, musty book, and it's hard to talk to it. Wet cardboard Uh or musty book. How about I'm cringing this? just thinking about those terms. <laughs> and you know what? I've got an even better one, and it's kind of Jersey-esque. How about waterlogged Buick Riviera? You know, it's that- If you smell that at a restaurant <laughs> in a cork, you should say, I don't accept this wine. Exactly, because that is evidence that the wine has spoiled. Now, the problem with talking about it is nothing compares to actually smelling it. So it's such a teachable moment. When I'm teaching at these festivals like Aspen Food and Wine or South Beach, and we have a corked wine, and the volunteers are like, oh, sorry, Mark, we'll we'll get rid of this. I'm like, don't do that. I want to take this wine and pass it around the audience because nothing will get them understanding that waterlogged Buick Riviera smell like actually smelling a corked wine. All right. So we covered sniffing. Yes. What about swirling (laughs) and touching the cork? Yeah. Well, you're swirling. And by the way, I want to just say I brought wine here because I have to come with wine. Mondavi Reserve Cabernet 09 you probably know this, class of 36, Robert Mondavi. Stanford class of 36. And played rugby at Stanford. But I digress. So we're drinking this great Robert Mondavi wine, and what I'm doing now is I'm going to swirl it, and you're doing that to release the vapors and get a better smell of it. So you're better able to smell the wine if you swirl it first. Completely. You're aerating the wine. I call it putting a lid on it. Even pros don't do this that much. When you're swirling it, 
cover it with your hand and it traps in the vapors and you magnify the smell of it. So you'll see me in restaurants doing this all the time. And then you tilt it towards you, take deliberate sniffs and appreciate the fruit essences, appreciate signs of oak. Maybe it's like vanilla or maybe it's like spice. And the more you do it, the better you get. All right. And then legs. What are, I mean, I know what legs are in general on a person. I have no idea what legs are in a wine. It's sort of the coating on the inside of the glass. What is it? Completely. It's like um, take paint and throw it on a wall and watch the film come down the wall or watch the paint dribble down. And that equivalent is what really we mean when we, it's the glycerol that's coating the side of your glass. And, And is that good or bad? It's something you shouldn't think about, actually. Well, it's so some, forget about legs. Yeah. It, so in the 70s, in the bell-bottomed, crazy disco Saturday night fever 70s, legs were thought mistaken to be an indicator of quality. But now the wine community doesn't really put a lot of credence into it. It doesn't really tell you much. Your nose, especially. Your, your mouth to a very good extent, but it's really your nose. The olfactory organ is so sensitive. We can smell thousands of different things. You know, smell is so evocative. Think of your mother's baked bread or the smell of rubber or earthiness, rain on pavement. Smell is incredibly evocative. Taste is very good, but sight in terms of legs, not needed. All right. So there are all these fancy pants terms that everyone throws around with wine. And this is where I get sort of daunted, right? Because I I feel as if I don't have the right vocabulary. I don't have the right understanding. So what are things like balance, weight, body, acidity, dryness, tannin? These are the terms that get thrown around all the time. So people say, that's a dry wine versus not a dry wine. And I say, it feels wet to me. (laughs) And you you be right on that, Howard. (laughs) Why don't you say some of those words? I'll give you like a phrase. Got it. Balance. No one thing is sticking out. It's not too oaky. It's not too acidic. You don't get too much of a sense of alcohol. Weight or body. It's like the equivalent of water versus skim milk versus whole milk. It's the weightiness in your mouth. Acidity. It's the equivalent of lemon squeeze. It's the tingle on your tongue. All wine should have a nice amount of acidity, too much, and it can be overly tart, too little. And in wine speak, we call it flabby. Dryness. Dryness, opposite of sweet, or the perception of sweet. Chardonnay is inherently dry, but some are vinified to taste a little bit sweet, or they're exposed to so much oak that it almost takes on a butterscotchy, vanilla, sweet-seeming quality. So when they say this wine's very dry, it doesn't have any of that perception of sweetness. And the final word, tannin. Oh, tannin. Think of overly concentrated tea, gum-numbing pucker, the sides of your mouth getting overly dry, Uh, usually in red wine and usually certain types like certain Cabernets, certain Zinvendels. And the right amount of tannin with the right wine is what allows it to get better over the years. All right. So what I read in your book tells me this. Varietal wines, wines that come from one variety, are different than blended wines or wines that come from more than one grape. Are varietal wines better than the blended wines? Is it like a purebred dog versus a mutt? I mean, how do, how do we think about this? And a lot of people prefer the mutts, too. People, when they hear the wine is blended, there's a certain 
suspicion, like it's hamburger helper, like it's a bad crab cake where it's too much cake and not enough crab, you know. But really good blended wines, let's say Joseph Phelps Insignia, that's a blend of different grapes. And when it's done well and done with integrity, it's actually more complex, meaning you smell and taste more things in it, and it's preferable, or at least it's highly desirable. So let me tell you, in California, to be labeled a Chardonnay or a Cabernet or a Zimmendale, you only need 75% of that named grape. So so they're blended anyway. Exactly. So don't stress too much about blended wine. Also, another good thing about wines that are blended is it spreads the agricultural risk. So if the Merlot didn't ripen well in one year, maybe the Cabernet did. And if you're blending the two together, you can adjust accordingly. This is Stanford Pathfinders. More with entrepreneur and wine expert Mark Oldman coming up. This is Stanford Pathfinders on Sirius XM Insight 121. I'm Howard Wolf, and I'm speaking with entrepreneur and wine expert Mark Oldman. So when I got out of college in 1980 and I was learning about wines for the first time, I was told, if you're having meat, you drink a red wine. Right. If you're having chicken, fish, or vegetables, you have a white wine. And don't be the loser <laughs> that breaks the rule. <laughs> I know. Is the rule still the rule, or is this it's all not. an old wives' tale. There's a little bit of truth to it. I mean, white wine with white meats or lighter meats, red wine with uh, red meats. I can understand that because the cardinal rule of food and wine pairing is you don't want the food to obscure the wine or vice versa. You don't want your delicate filet of, of halibut being bludgeoned by a big, rich Cabernet Sauvignon or the opposite. But see, here's the dirty little truth. I drink almost any wine with almost, I have it with almost any food, and I'm not complaining too much. So we're really, the persnickety rules only come into play if you're drinking that once a year special burgundy or special Napa Cabernet. You kind of want to match the inherent weight or body of that wine with the weight of the dish. All right, so when I was a kid, I used to love to dip my Oreo cookies in milk. And now I'm an adult, and I don't do that anymore. I've grown beyond that. But now I hear that people can dunk cookies in wine. Oh, yeah. That gets back to kind of letting your hair down around wine. Again, the people at the top of the industry in wine do it. And for example, in Italy, in Tuscany, there's a golden, beautiful dessert wine called Vinsanto. Mm -hmm. And you take your biscotti and you dip it into the Vinsanto after dinner. And the biscotti gets kind of moist and delicious and takes on the taste of this beautiful, golden, apricot-y uh, dessert wine. And it's the best combination in the world. So when you're having a dinner party... Get biscotti. It doesn't have to be a Vinsanto. It could be any late harvest, let's say, Californian dessert wine or a Sauternes or a dessert wine from the Loire. Anyway, tell your guests to dip their cookies in the wine. And That's not a faux pas. That's okay. That's accepted. Break the rules. You know, at the best restaurants in Tuscany, they're, they're doing it. Right. Why can't we do it? All right. So I'm out to dinner with my friends, and it's my job to pick a wine – from an endless list of wines that oh, yeah. are given to me by the waiter. So give us some tricks to figure out how to get the best wine values at restaurants. 
I mean, is it okay to simply order the cheapest wine? What I do is, here's what I do. I find the cheapest wine, and then I go one wine up from the cheapest wine. Because <laughs> yeah. I don't want to look like that guy that picked the cheapest wine. Exactly. But I, I don't figure I can figure out the benefit of the more expensive wine. What's the game here? How do you play And it? by the way, I find myself doing that, or I'll go two up, you know? Because we're all— Well, you're a classier guy than I am. That's why you go two up. <laughs> Well, you, you want to put in a little bit of a smoke screen, but no, no, the bottom line is in a restaurant that you think has wine integrity and how do you know? Well, maybe they're known for their wine program or there are intelligent and relatively simple descriptions for each wine or the sommelier or the server really seems to know their stuff without pontificating, then you could absolutely trust the least expensive wine on the list. People are amazed to learn that. They're standing behind the wines that are on their list. Yes. They have a vested interest in making sure that every one of those is good. Especially the least expensive, because that's probably what they're drinking when they're off duty. And it's often a pet love of theirs. You know, it might be a forgotten or, or neglected region. People are so happy to learn that it's totally acceptable to order this expensive. I was in a really expensive steakhouse in my native New York a couple of weeks ago, and I announced to the table, watch this. And it's like the golden chalice. I, I ordered the $65 bottle when most every other bottle was over $100. And people oohed and odd. I didn't tell them how much it was. I told them later. And they were like, that's incredible. And there are certain categories to look for. For example, I say, order the unpronounceable. Because that which is easy to pronounce gets marked up because we feel like Howard Wolf's in restaurant. We're like, I feel like I know nothing. So we all fall back on Chardonnay and Merlot and Cabernet, whereas the Gruner Veltlinger and the Gewürztraminer and all these other things that are very hard to pronounce get neglected so they can't be marked up as much. Go to a good restaurant with a yes. great list, pick the cheap one. Yeah. Or now, let's say you can't tell if they have integrity. Then don't you just ask them? Uh, <laughs> I know it's like let me you know how serious are you about wine? What I'll do, or let's say they have integrity, but you know they're very profit oriented. There are certain celebrity chef restaurants like that. So what I'll do is I'll say to my server, "Do you have the most knowledge about the wine?" I don't want to make them think that like to me they look non-wine knowledgeable. So I'll, I'll approach it delicately. I'll be like, are you the sommelier or is there a sommelier? And they'll usually say, well, actually I do know a lot or let, let me get him or her. I bring them over and then I, I ask them, it's, it's part tell, part ask, but I'm going to ask you, Howard, now, give me a color, white or red? Red. Okay, red. And give me, we talked about body, um, heavy, well, let's say light, medium, or heavy. Medium. Okay. So red, that's medium. And how much do you want to spend? As little as I can. Beautiful. You're, we're, we're birds of a feather here. So I will say that to the uh, knowledgeable server. I want a red wine that's medium bodied, and I want to not spend a lot of money. I could tell you, don't ask for a good a value. We can, we can, yeah, we can get it. What's the difference in good value and good price? Okay. So that's a trap. So many restaurants, and I've asked for good values because I'm afraid of seeming like a cheapskate, and they point to the $140 bottle because to them it tastes like the $300 bottle. I see. But they know 
that I'm looking for a non-expensive wine. You're looking for a good price, not a good value. Exactly. So ask for a good price, not a good value. Okay, so you're going to give these criteria to to your server, and then if they're worth anything, they're going to come up with choices that adhere to your price range, okay? And don't accept the first recommendation because you don't realize it, but it takes them a while to think up the or or think of the really good gems on the list. So I, I say have Tinder tendencies. Kind of scroll through it verbally with them. Okay, that sounds good. What else? Okay, that sounds good. Okay, now anything from another region. What else? And then to break the tie, go with the wine that sounds the coolest, has the coolest name. <laughs> All right. So one final question. You've forgotten more about wine than I will ever know in my next 10 lifetimes. Most people so, know nothing. So make me look cool at the next time I have a party or whatever. Give me one white and one red that you think is just – I know they're all different varieties uh, yeah, and that so kind of stuff. Many. I know, I know, I know. But like say, Howard, right. you can't go wrong with okay. this – Gotcha. Neither of these are expensive, and you'll find them at any decent wine store. For white, there's an Argentine white called Tarantes. It's almost like the white Malbec in that it's the big category wine of Argentina, yet whereas Malbec's known very well, Tarantes, this white wine from Argentina, is not. Here's the cool thing. There's a duality. It smells very perfumed. It smells like it might not be dry. So, People love it. It's very seductive. But you taste it, and it's got no sweetness. So it blows people's minds. Torontes from Argentina. Okay. Okay. And then the red, and so I was in Sicily a couple months ago. You think Sicilian red wine is going to be big, rich, Chianti's, right? rustic. You would think it would be like that. that yeah. Or, or, yeah, kind of rustic and acidic. Right now on Mount Etna, there is— The volcano Mount Etna. You know it. You know, and you know what I learned when I was there that uh, the locals, especially the youngins, go to near the volcano and when it's kind of semi erupting, just to watch it like a free light show. So cool <laughs> with some really good wine. So ask for a red from Mount Etna. You will seem like a Vinus hero. Mark, I can't tell you how much I've enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much for being on the show. It is a true Stanford honor. Okay. Yeah. What a great sound, right? It's like a Pavlovian ecstasy to that sound. You, know, you <laughs> hear that. And... Okay. Cheers, man. Cheers. Man. Yay. Thank you for having me on. Okay, Mark. Now that the show's over, let's drink a little bit of this uh, Robert Mondavi Winery Reserve from 2009. I think it's a Cabernet Sauvignon, right? Yeah, this is one of California's great red wines All right. right now. Tell me what it is I am tasting. First of all, does it have much of a smell? And when I spin it, and especially when I spin it and I put a lid on it with my hand, so I smell it and it has a bit of a pencil lead smell to me. Graphite, if you will. To other people, that might be earthiness or kind of a mineral smell to it. So you smell the classic Cabernet black currants, or let's make it even broader than that, like red fruits, like plums or black currants. But then what makes a great wine and a wine with complexity is you get more from it. So when I smell this Mondavi, there's this kind of pencil lead thing. Try it. Check it out. Well, no, spin it. See, oh, sorry, that's it. Sorry. There you got to spin it. I got to swirl. Lit it, lit it. 
right. then it's not only pencil lead, it's number two pencil lead, I think. <laughs> uh, and then you taste it. Yeah, this is what I really want to hear. Mm. You taste it, and it's not too heavy. Mark, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for joining us on Stanford Pathfinders on Sirius XM Insight. If you missed any of this episode, listen anytime on demand with the Sirius XM app.